give a big warm welcome to Pastor Arch Rutherford. Thank you, Neil. Sorry, I'm going to have to get this over here. You all should have uh, gotten uh, a couple of uh, pages of paper that actually are four pages by front and back, stapled together. Okay, uh, that'll be helpful. The reason I did that, um, when I'm teaching overseas, I usually, we just use Bibles. They're, they're working with a foreign, their own foreign version, and so I'll have them read their, their Bible and then I'll make comments through the interpreter as to what's going on. But today, to expedite things, because we're working in an American situation where you only get a few minutes to speak God's Word. And uh, overseas, you get eight hours. It's great. It is, if I don't finish it and they've got to take a tea break, then I come back and go another hour and a half. It's just wonderful. But in any case, I um, would like for you to uh, just uh, take a look at that and uh, as we go through it. And I'm going to be asking some of you that I think I can get away with it uh, to read some of the scripture. And uh, I would prefer you go ahead and just read it off the page that is in front of you if I ask you to read a portion. And that way uh, it will help us keep moving. I've tried to cut this down as much as possible to keep it within the time frame that we have. I want to just say on behalf of my wife and myself how deeply we appreciate Coast Bible Church and... Um, this is my home church, in a way, uh, it continues to be my home church. We're attending a, a fellowship there in, um, in Colorado Springs, but it's not this church. It's not my family. It does, I don't have the history and the memories at that church that I have here. And so when I'm here, I really feel like I'm part of the body, and I know a lot of you are newer to me, and I welcome you to a wonderful, wonderful fellowship of people. And uh, jump in. Feed first, and you're going to be loved, and you're going to uh, enjoy loving others. And uh, this church has meant so much to us because it's a very loving family of believers. And not uh, a cliquish one. I mean, people come in all the time that are from uh, new, and they they integrate right in. Sometimes people have to leave. Uh, Military people we've had come and go and so forth. But there's always that sense of family that's present in this church, and I appreciate it deeply. I'd like just to, first of all, thank you for your support and your prayers and your continued love even when we're not here. And uh, it means a lot to Carolyn and I to know that uh, many of you are praying for us and many of you support us financially. The church is supporting us financially. We just could not do what we're doing if it were not for your help. Secondly, I'd like just to thank you as the church who has taught me a lot about being a pastor about loving other people, uh, of being willing to accept the love of others, not feeling I can do everything myself. Uh, I've learned so much uh, from this church, and I want to thank you for what you've taught me. I also want to just thank you for the privilege of learning myself, as this church has expected me down through the years to study God's Word and to preach messages Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that are solidly biblical. And it's that material, it's that background, it's that, uh, that, that wonderful learning that took place while I was here that is now helping me uh, to minister overseas. And I'm seeing things that I just, it's hard for me to believe because I guess I'm not used to, uh, uh, to uh, def- seeing God so powerfully work in my life in such a way that 
It just comes out of nowhere. I'm preaching, I'm teaching with these, these people, and they'll ask questions. They'll be interacting with me. And all of a sudden, things will come out of me, and I'll say, where'd that come from? And it was the Spirit of God bringing back things that I had learned while I was studying here, uh, helping me to bring, bring forth truth that helps them to understand their Bibles. Now, as we begin today, I'd like for you to picture yourself. And I have basically three, uh, three goals this morning. First of all, I'd like to demo what I do overseas. But it's obviously impossible to do that perfectly. But I'm going to try to have some interaction. Uh, I'm going to, uh, over the course of an eight-hour period, I will lecture about once or twice during a day. And that's an interactive lecture, which I'll try to do a little bit of today. But... Uh, the primary thing I'm going to do is to demo the type of lecturing I do. Most of the time, I'm going through the material that they've already written, done, and, and they have a manual, uh, the pastors that I'm teaching, and uh, they have worked through this. Now, picture yourself as a pastor of a church. You have about 30 people. You were basically... Uh, because you had a Bible and sort of had a gift of gab, the people said, we want you to be our leader, our pastor. And so that's how you got into being a pastor. And you didn't know much about the Bible, and so you've stayed pretty carefully to things that you know are, are, are for sure. It seems clear in Scripture. But there's a whole lot of the Bible you really are puzzled about, things that don't make sense. And you're hungry to learn. You've never had an opportunity to get any kind of formal training or discipling from, from someone else. Uh, it's been very basic what you've gotten. And so you've heard about this seminar that B, or this uh, program that B World has put together in which you're actually going to go to college. And you're going to take uh, Bible college level courses in their culture. That would be measured. And they're going to have manuals like this. One, and you're going to start off with a course called Romans and Galatians. And you've read through those books before, and you've read through the book of Acts, and you've read through, and, and there's so many questions you have. And so you want to jump onto a, a bus, and uh, you'll travel maybe two or three days to get to uh, the training center where this is going to take place, say in Nagaland, India, which is a tribal area that's in rebellion against India, and I can only get in by a special permit. And uh, there's going to be about 20 other pastors, 25 other pastors there in this particular training seminar. There's only 50 churches that are working right now in your particular ethnic group in, in Nagaland. And so you want to work to get there and be a part of that. And you've, you've, got, you've gotten the materials in your own language and you've tried to fill in all the answers. And you can see there's just a lot of holes in your understanding of the God's Word. And so you hop on that bus and you have to walk maybe many miles at times, and then catch another bus, and, uh, and people have to befriend you along the way. It takes you a lot of effort to get there. So after a day, two days, three days, you finally arrive at the training center, and you sit down to study God's Word. Now, let me just say one thing. Most of you here have had more exposure to God's Word and know more about God's Word than these pastors know. But they have one thing over us in America in general, and this is not true of everyone, they have a hunger. They really want to learn. And they're not sitting there saying, you know, what time is it? They're saying, you better give us something. We've worked hard to get here, and we're expecting some, some meat. We're expecting some substance. And you feel that. Well, as you look into this material, 
you begin to realize, well, there's a lot of stuff here that, that needs some attention. I'm looking at it as somebody that's been trained. And uh, they're just saying uh, this is lesson two and this is topic two. And it's called Defense of the Faith Needed in the Early Church. And this is leading up to the book of Galatians, which they're going to be studying. But this is all part of the things that they need to understand. And there's this one section called Traditional Issues in Christianity. And it goes through several different events that are critical. Most of them take place in the last, uh, in chapters 9 to 15 of the book of Acts. And I'm looking at that and I'm saying, what an opportunity to give them a lot more than what they have. So the Lord just gave me a lecture, if you will, interactive, a lecture that would help them understand so much more of the Bible. And I call this the transition, because we're going to move from the transition of the former age to the transition in which the age in which we're now living. The former age was an age that operated under the law. The law of Moses. And that's when people woke up in the morning and they had breakfast, they said, we need to make sure the food is kosher. We can't have bacon. But when you get to the new age, we wake up in the morning, and because this is an age of grace, we don't think about what we're going to have. Hey, bacon sounds great. We're going to have that. So let's start off with a timeline. And this means it's, we're picking it up at a certain point, whichever point that is, and this line's going to come across like this. Now, you have this on your, on your material there. And, and this age is going to end dramatically. Okay? And then a new age is going to begin. And it's going to continue on for a period of time now, for over 2,000 years. And at some point, it's going to end. And we're all going to be taken to heaven to be with our Lord Jesus Christ in a thing called the rapture. And then there's going to be a seven-year period called the tribulation. And during that period of time, there will be parallels with this. Maybe it would be better to put that in red. Because there'll be a returning to a focus on the Jew. And then the Lord Jesus Christ will come back and set up his kingdom on earth, which will last forever. And we can put that in red and blue and whatever. And this will be the kingdom age. This is the tribulation. And then this right here is, we'll, we'll take the account, 33 A.D. Now, there's some debate on the dates, so it's not that critical. And this is going to be the day in which the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, ascends into heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ ascends into heaven after his death on the cross, which occurred about, uh, which occurred 50 days earlier. And so you have the cross here, and then you have his ascension into heaven at the right hand of the Father. 
And then you have the coming of the Holy Spirit on this day right here. And the day of Pentecost, which we'll talk about. Now, that looks like, hey, that's the way it works out. 1201 midnight, or whenever the Spirit came on that day, we begin a new age. It's done and over with. Just a little problem. And that is, this age doesn't just end instantly. There are things in this age that are going to continue into this age until there's a final bringing things to a conclusion. Likewise, our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing the cross, knowing of his resurrection, knowing about the coming of the Spirit, he begins to teach these things back in this age. So what you end up with is a period of time. This would be about... can't get my colors right here. This would be a period of about uh, 50... A.D., when this ends, when the transition ends. And this would be a time about 2028 A.D., somewhere in there, when the transition begins. And we'll show you what that means. This is the transition period. This is the period we want to talk about because there's a lot of confusion when we look at our Bibles and begin to study our Bibles a lot of things don't seem to make sense because some of the things we're reading about really connect with this age. Other things are, that we're reading about here seem to point to this age. And so we have to sort of read with our eyes open, trying to discern just what's going on. Now, I'd like to... My hope is that by the time we finish today, that you will have, like I hope they have when I'm teaching overseas, a big picture And all of a sudden, the pieces that have been there in their Bible, these little pieces, suddenly begin to make sense. And they're saying, wow, I'm seeing it. And my Bible's beginning to make sense. That's my number one goal when I'm teaching like that. But I also have some personal goals, and hopefully we'll have time to share some personal things that I think will be helpful in applying the truth that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, I would like just to mention as we begin a transition, it's important to know that there is certain truth, and I've, uh, on your sheets there, I think I've called that A, that this transition is sourced in biblical truth. The biblical truth that I want to just briefly mention is, first of all, going all the way back to Genesis 3. God made a declaration, you could call it a promise, that Satan's head, in other words, his power to control people and dominate their lives, would be crushed. And while he, at the same time, would inflict a wound upon Messiah, the seed of the woman. And the ancient people ancient believers grabbed onto that as a promise. And it became the the promise that God, our God, has promised to send a Messiah, a seed of the woman, a person who shall provide a foundation for our salvation from sin and the guilt of sin and from physical death, which basically controls our life, were it not for the fact that we know there's life after death. 
And that's what the Messiah came to assure us and promise us and provide a means for. Secondly, in Romans 12, God gives a, uh, a promise to Abraham. Genesis 12. A promise to Abraham. And he concludes the promise by saying, look, you're going to be a special person. I'm going to bring nations out of you. We're going to do a number of things with you. But in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In your seed. And he's speaking about Messiah. And so Messiah would come not just to provide a blessing for his family, but for all the families of the earth before in the age past, as well as in the age to come, all the way into the kingdom age. Lastly, I just want to point out that throughout the scriptures, there's always been one way of salvation. Not two ways of salvation, as some have suggested. In the Old Testament times, salvation was through faith in God and in his promise to send Messiah, who would save us, who would come into this world and save believers from their sin and from the catastrophic disaster of physical death. In the New Testament age, we come to know that that Messiah has a name. His name is Jesus. And so the message of the New Testament age is not different from the Old Testament when it comes to our eternal salvation. It's the same. And that is, by faith in the name of Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has come into the world to save us from our sins and grant us everlasting life, hope beyond death, that we have salvation through His name. So I just want to make sure that before we move into this transition period, we understand that the, this, these sourced biblical principles that are from the past, they are undergirding this age of transition. Especially the concept that there's just one way of salvation. Through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who has come into the world to save us from our sins and from death. Now, let's move on and begin to talk about this a little bit. But I want to start with a joke. Now, I don't tell jokes very well, so this is going to be a real challenge. This is a joke of St. Peter joke. There was a cab driver and a, pet, a preacher. And they both died on the same day and found themselves standing before St. Peter. And they were waiting there uh, for St. Peter to allow them into heaven or not. And St. Peter looks over first the cab driver. And he says, uh, what did you do on earth? And he says, well, I was a cab driver. And he says, um, that's great. He says, here is a golden staff and a silk robe. And I want you to enter into the kingdom of heaven here, into heaven. And you'll find on the first or second street it is, you turn right, you go up to a cul-de-sac, and there'll be a nice mansion there, several levels for you and your to live. And then next there was the preacher. And he said, well, what did you do on earth? He said, well, I, I was a preacher. And uh, St. Peter looks him over and says, uh, well, here is a, a wool coat for you and, a, and an oak staff. And you can go down about 
Four streets on the left-hand side, right on the corner, there's a flat. It's just one bedroom, but you'll find it comfortable. It is in the kingdom, and that's for you. So the preacher began to leave, and he just couldn't resist. He says, you know, why am I treated lower than a cab driver? So he turns around to St. Peter, and he says, St. Peter, why is it that, you know, the cab driver gets all this appreciation and all these things bestowed on him, but... But I'm not, uh, I'm not worthy of anything other than a wool silk, a wool jacket, and, or a coat, and an uh, oak staff, and a home that's a flat. What's going on here? I'm just a little confused. And he says, oh, don't think too much about it. He says, we do work on results here. And while you preached, people slept. And while he drove, people prayed. Unfortunately, that's all too true, isn't it? Now, I tell the joke because it actually fits into our material this morning. And the big question is, and this was interesting in Yahoo, one of some a Christian, evidently, from what he said, he says, I've been a Christian all my life, and I don't understand why these St. Peter jokes keep coming up. What's the basis for that? And so they put it out on Yahoo for people to respond to, and... and uh, the number one answer to the question that the people liked was that Peter was just the roughest and toughest guy that they had up there in heaven. And he was like you might consider him heaven's bouncer. So that he bounced you out if you didn't live up to it. Now that's how the world looks at this. But is there another explanation? Why is Peter... The one that supposedly sits there and lets people into heaven. And of course, most of you probably know the passage that we're going to look at because it, it's the passage that's used to prove this idea. And that's found in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19. And uh, I'm going to start off with my buddy Neil and ask him to read that, if he wouldn't mind. All right. A wonderful passage of Scripture. And this actually begins the transition, if you will. This is the first time that Jesus uses the word church, obviously in a future context. And he refers to Peter as, you you are Peter. The word Peter, Petros, means uh, a rock or a portion of a rock, a, a piece of rock. And on this rock, he uses a different word, Petra which speaks, I think, more of a substantially of a real solid rock, I will build my church. Now, what he's saying there is, is there's going to be a common denominator, a foundation on which the church is built, and that 
common denominator is going to be people's faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, which was Peter's testimony. That was the rock upon which the church would be built. Not on Peter, but on Peter's testimony. And all the people who would enter into the church are going to believe what Peter said, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has come into the world to save us from our sins and from physical death and from eternal death, from death itself. But then he goes on and he says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, in the old, in New Testament times or biblical times, the gates were the place where decisions were made, where things were controlled, where government existed, so to speak. And so he's speaking here about the government of Hades. Now, Hades is the place of the departed dead. It's the place where the dead go. So it's speaking about those, the devil and his angels, who have control over people through death. And they're standing there at the gates of Hades, and they've made a decision. If they can keep people enslaved to the fear of death, they can control the way they live and thus lead them into sin. He says they won't prevail. The devil and his angels, who are at the gates of Hades, using this tool over man, will not prevail. And then he says this to Peter, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's where all these St. Peter jokes come from. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, most people think when you talk about the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that we're talking about uh, letting people in. I want to unlock heaven so people can walk in. No. Just like in our homes, the keys are intended to, uh, we secure the doors to keep the contents secure inside. And what he's saying is, I'm going to give you the keys to the heavens so you can unlock the contents that are inside. In other words, there are going to be blessings during the kingdom of heaven age here that you're going to be able to unlock here. The people who believe in me can experience those blessings that are here now in this age. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about keys to let people in. He's talking about access. Peter will have access to the blessings of the kingdom age to take them out and grant them to people. Furthermore, he'll have this authority. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. In other words, you're going to have the right to set the rules as to when these blessings are poured out or given to someone... You're going to set the requirements for what they have to do to receive those blessings. You're thinking, Arts, this sounds like legalism. Hold your horses. We are going to move on, and we'll get back to it. Let's move on to the next passage, John 7, 37 to 39. And uh, John Varela, would you read that? He's speaking here about the Holy Spirit. That there will come a day when the Holy Spirit will be given. But not until Jesus is glorified. 
Then the Spirit will come. Now, if you think about it, what is the number one blessing of the kingdom age? Will be the pouring out of God's Spirit, according to Joel chapter 3, according to Jeremiah 31. It's going to be experienced, though, prior to the kingdom age, at this point. We'll go back to it. John 14, verses 15 to 17. Uh, Jack, would you read that? All right. John 14. What do you notice about that passage at the end of it regarding the Holy Spirit? He wasn't yet in them, was he? The Old Testament age, the Holy Spirit was with them. He was with David. He was with Saul. They kept praying, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. I need his help. But he wasn't in them. But Jesus predicting what? That the Holy Spirit would be in them and those who believe in Him. All right. Let's move on to John, uh, Acts 1, 4 to 8. Acts 1, 4 to 8. What is on the mind of Jesus? What's in the forefront of His mind? The coming of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit, meaning that the Spirit comes upon us and envelops us like water envelops us. Only it's a, a spiritual power that comes upon His people. What was on the mind of the disciples? <laughs> Where's the kingdom? They're still thinking about it. You know, that's what they were thinking about all the way through their life. That here we got the Messiah, the King, and He's going to set up the kingdom, man. We're going to reign with Him. Things are going to be good. We're going to kick out the Romans. Everything's going to be great. The world's going to look to Israel. And they're still thinking about it after his resurrection, after the cross, after the resurrection. This isn't actually properly put, is it? So Acts 1 is about here. Okay. Keep that in mind, because that's going to play out here as we move forward. What Jesus is doing now in verse 8, he shifts their attention. He says, you know, or verse 7 and 8, he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons as to when the Father is going to establish the kingdom. But what is important for you, here's your responsibility. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth, at the end of the earth. That's what Jesus wanted to leave with them. You need to be thinking about being my witnesses, not the kingdom. Okay, Acts Chapter 2, we have the transition unveiled by the Holy Spirit. It begins with the words of Jesus, but now it's going to be unveiled by the Holy Spirit. And now we're talking about this period of time right here, ground zero, 33 A.D., the day of Pentecost. Okay, would um, somebody read Acts uh, 2 uh, down to uh, from verse 1 to verse 11? Let me just, uh, I don't want to go into any details here, apart from the fact that they were dwelling in Jerusalem, 
Jews. This wasn't a Gentile thing yet. Jews were dwelling in Jerusalem. They were devout men, God-fearing people, from every nation under the heaven. Now, that didn't mean that they were Gentiles. It meant that they were living in nations all around the ancient world of that day as Jews. But they had come here on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, which is one of three major feasts, to basically celebrate the first fruits of a coming harvest and God's blessing upon them in general in life. Pentecost occurs 50 days after the Feast of Passover, so they would make a, a double deal out of it because the other major feast, Passover and Pentecost, coming together within a month, this was a great time to come and spend time with family here in Jerusalem. And of course, when they made a journey, it was a serious journey by foot or by caravan, camel, or donkey. Secondly, we read that the, they were all amazed because they heard these Galileans, people from the area of Galilee, speaking in their own dialects, tongues that they obviously did not know, languages they didn't know, but what were they speaking? This is the one that's thing that's often missed. We often get hung up on the tongues. But notice what they were speaking. The wonderful works of God. The blessings that Jesus spoke about out of the, out of the heart of man, out of the heart of believers, shall flow rivers of living water, blessing people. Those rivers were now beginning to flow as they began to announce in their own languages the wonderful works of God. But we move on and we read in the next verses. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? Others mocking said, ah, they're full of booze. They're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter's going back to his Old Testament. Good move. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Joel's speaking about this period here. And the period just, bringing, just leading up to it. And so Peter is seeing a connection. And he moves on and he says in your... Young men will see visions and so forth, and your daughters will prophesy. And he continues on. All these things that are going to be happening in those days, and I will pour out my spirit in those days. Then verse 19. And I will show in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, when he comes to establish his kingdom. Now, did Peter see the sun turning to blood? Did he see the, sun, the moon, I should say, turning to blood? Did he see smoke and vapor? No. But he was expecting to see it at any minute. Because in his mind, he didn't know anything about this period right here. He's looking from here to here. And he's saying, this is getting ready for this. Jesus is coming back any moment. That's where he was in his thinking. So, he says in verse 21, And it came to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But who is the Lord? Who is the Messiah King who will come and establish 
the kingdom. So Peter begins to preach Jesus. And you've read Acts 2 before. He preaches the life of Jesus. He preaches the fact that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was risen. They crucified him, he emphasizes. He's now ascended into heaven next to the Father, implying that he's the Son. And then Peter says this, Acts 2.36 to 41. Lou, would you read Acts 2.36 to 41? Okay, this is an extremely important part of Scripture. Therefore, he brings this message. You crucified Christ. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He's ascended into heaven. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, he's speaking to the Jews that are there from all over the world, who were there also a month earlier and who yelled out, crucify him. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, know for a fact, that God has made this Jesus, the Savior, the name means, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. What's going on here? He's really driving home something that must have just cut them to shreds, which is what we read next. The one whom they crucified was none other than their Messiah. Not only was Messiah, he was the Lord. He was the ruler of all. And in this context, if you read Acts 2 through, you'll find that Lord refers to the fact that he was the king. And he's now sitting at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. He has a relationship with God the Father. He was sent as God's Son to this world to save us from our sins. All these things are now coming together in their mind. They're saying, what's going on here? We crucified our own Savior, our own Messiah, our own Lord and King. And you can hear what's happening. The wheels are turning. And they're thinking, man, any moment, any moment... God is just going to wipe us off of the earth as a nation. The wrath of God, always speaking of temporal wrath, is coming and it's going to sweep us away. They were cut to the heart, it says next. And they said, what shall we do? Now, let me just mention in passing, when they were cut to the heart, it implies what? That they believed what Peter had just said. They believed that Jesus was the Christ the Son of the living God, who'd come into the world to save them from their sins. According to John, and according to the the context of, of salvation, eternal salvation, they were already eternally saved. They were born again at that moment. They had eternal life when they believed what Peter said. But there was a more pressing issue. It'd be like if we were in church right now, and I was preaching to someone about eternal salvation... And suddenly we see in the back of the church there's a fire. And it's sweeping through here. The first thing I'm going to say is, get out of the church. Because at any moment it's going to take our lives. And that's exactly what these people felt. There was a fire at any moment that was just going to consume them. The fire of God's wrath. And he said to Peter, what do we do? What do we do? So we aren't swept away. And of course, eventually, God would, in 70 A.D., sweep that whole nation out the door and pour out his wrath upon them. But they were thinking right now. And so they asked Peter, what shall we do? 
And so, what would Peter say to them? He says, repent. He says, repent. And be baptized. For the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who has the the authority to set the rules about the blessings of the kingdom age? We're not talking about their salvation here, their eternal salvation. We're talking about the forgiveness of sins. Now, the forgiveness of sins... Many people think this is a legal thing. It's not. The forgiveness of sins has to do with something personal. If I go up and steal money from you, there will be a barrier between us. And I need to come to you and say, I I took this money and give it back to you. And then our fellowship, our, our relationship will be restored. Forgiveness of sins has to do with a personal relationship with God. On the other hand, there is a legal context of justification where we stand before God as the judge. And that's what eternal salvation deals with. We are justified by faith. That's what the book of Galatians drives home. But this idea of personal sins, this generation of Jews felt a tremendous distance from God. He was no longer their friend. He was their enemy. And at any moment, he in his anger was going to sweep them away as a people. That's what they were fearful of. One of the marks of the kingdom age is that people will have a personal relationship with God. They will be close to him. He will be like a friend. They didn't feel like they were friendly. Furthermore, they saw the Spirit of God had been poured out, which was a mark of this age, the coming of the king. And they didn't have that pouring out of the Spirit. The question is, what do we do to get it, Peter? Peter, who has the keys. He has the keys to unlock the blessings of the kingdom age. And the blessings are the forgiveness of sins and the coming of the the reception of the Holy Spirit. But they have to do something. We're not talking about something for eternal salvation. We're talking about something for personal relationship with God and for them receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, people were saved without the gift of the Holy Spirit back in this point. They had the Holy Spirit with them, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. So the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is a blessing, attending salvation. So, in any case, Peter says to them, you need to repent. You need to turn from this sin. The sin of putting your own Messiah on the cross. Well, how do we turn from that sin? Be baptized. Be baptized in water. Why that? Because in being baptized, they were identifying themselves with Messiah. In contrast to their nation, which was saying he was a common criminal and deserved to die. Now they were saying he is my savior. He has washed away my sins. He's the one in whom I trust for my salvation. And they were openly identifying with him. And when they did that, Peter says, because he has the authority to loose and to unloose, he says, the blessing of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, which it did. And, of course, we continue to read all about the fact of their, their uh, uh, receiving the Holy Spirit and then Peter exhorting them to be saved. Others that were there, be saved from this perverse generation. The only way you can be saved is to be baptized and repent and be baptized. And 3,000 souls were added to them. And then it says in the end, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Now, this is the first mention of the word church in the new age, in this new period. Now, in our minds, 
The church means what we are today. But they're Jews. Peter and the believers, they were Jews. And this word church simply meant a gathering. A gathering of people who believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But they were looking at this gathering as a remnant that, that Joel spoke about who would be waiting to cry out to the Messiah, come and save us, and he would come and save us and set up the kingdom. They had no idea about this here. So in the minds of the disciples, oh, this, is, this church is the remnant. It's the remnant of Jews that are going to call out to Messiah to save us. That's what they were thinking. And they continued. In fact, in the next verse, which we won't have time to go into today, in Acts chapter 3, he talks about uh, the same thing. Basically, you need, he preaches Jesus to this group of hostile people at first at the temple who had seen this miracle. And then he says, you know, that uh, you need to uh, believe in him. You need to be converted. And the word converted there has the whole thought of Acts 2.38 in it. Repent. Be baptized. And then the times that your sins may be blotted out, forgiven, as well as the whole idea of the coming of the Spirit. And then he adds that the, so that the times of refreshing may come. Now, in our translation, it says that your sins may be blotted out. There was no may in there. It's actually be converted that your sins be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come. The times of refreshing and the restoration of all things, Peter's thinking of this age right here. He's talking the kingdom. So he's, he's on this track. He's saying, if you're converting, you could become part of the remnant who is calling upon the Lord then, and this will usher, usher in the kingdom age because the mark of the beginning of the kingdom is when the people of God, the Jewish people, one day at this point, will one day cry out, save us, Messiah. And he comes to save them at the sound of that cry. Peter's saying, this must be the day. And Peter's thinking of 3,000. And then in Acts chapter 4, 3 and 4, we read there were 5,000. He's adding up the numbers. Man, we've got about 20,000 people here if you count them all up. This could be the remnant. This could be it. The kingdom could be at any moment. We've got to expect smoke and fire and, and terrible things because that will precipitate this. And then we're going to cry out, this 20,000 plus people, we're going to cry out. And Jesus is going to return and establish the kingdom. But you see, sometimes what seems so obvious to us when we're going through a transition in our life may not be what God has planned. That's the real problem. That's what I've faced in my life. I think you've faced it in your life. We all go through transitions. And sometimes we're trying to map all this out and figure it out. And we think, oh, I, just, I know what God's doing here. And sometimes we don't. And I don't think Peter had a clue at this point. He had no idea. I mean, he had the, some things dropped along the way, but he couldn't put them together. And when he was here, he's still thinking kingdom, just like in, back in Acts 1. But what really would jolt Peter... Is when we get to the next verse, Acts 8. Acts 8. And let's just read verses 1 to, uh, to um, 8 there. Excuse me, just read to verse 4. Acts 8, 1 to 4. Okay. Who all was scattered? Everyone. Except for who? The apostles. Why do you think the apostles stayed in Jerusalem? 
I mean, the heat was on there. It wasn't because they were chickens. Where would Jesus return when he came to establish his kingdom? Jerusalem, Mount of Olives. Do you think maybe they were staying there saying, we've got to keep this remnant going here. We can't, we can't desert the ship. They forgot Acts 1.8. Go be my witnesses in where? Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They were in Jerusalem. They didn't get any further than that. But the people, they're out there witnessing in Jerusalem. I mean, in Judea and Samaria. And it's amazing. They're still there. Waiting for Jesus to return and establish the kingdom. That's what's happening. Now, the people went out. And we read on here, and I don't have time today to to go into it in depth. But basically, they went out and preached to the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans are half-breed Jews. They were looked down on as really not Jews at all. And so they were a, a lower class of people. And it says that when Peter preached to the, or when the people preached to them, Jesus, meaning they preached that Jesus died, rose again, they preached the, the whole message, that they believed it. They were excited. And it says then they got baptized, but they didn't get the Holy Spirit. They didn't get the Holy Spirit. Well, why? Who, who, who has the keys to the kingdom? We got a new, Peter does. We got a new group of people here, Peter. We need to do something. They need to have these blessings unlocked for them. How we do that? Well, Peter, you need to take a journey down there to Samaria where you should have been anyhow. And you need to decide on what they have to do as half-breed Jews to receive the blessings of the kingdom age. They already have eternal life. They're already born again. But they haven't gotten the blessing of the Holy Spirit yet. So make up your mind, Peter. What are you going to do here? So Peter goes down. And what do we read? He said, in essence, they've been baptized. They've done what's required. I'm going to lay hands on them. I'm going to endorse what they've done. And when he laid hands on them, he was unlocking the blessing of the Holy Spirit who would then come upon them. And they would know the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, a personal friendship and relationship with God. Okay, let's move on. We've uh, got one major thing here that sort of throws in, since, since this would be preparation for the study of the book of Galatians, we've got to talk about the Apostle Paul, but we don't have any time to do that. But let me just mention Acts 9. This is the story of Paul and his conversion. And God made it clear that Paul shall be uh, a vessel, a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. Now, you'll notice that the disciples were to go to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They got a geographical commission, which they hadn't yet fulfilled. But Paul had a special one. It was a demographic commission in which he would be going to kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel. And what he would do is he would actually jumpstart, galvanize the church as well as the apostles, Peter. God was going to use Paul to get Peter and the other apostles moving in the direction they were supposed to be moving, which is to be witnesses to me in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Paul becomes God's key vessel for getting out the message 
not only to Jews, but to Samaritans and even beyond, especially to Gentiles and even kings. Acts 10, 34 to 48. This is an interesting passage, and it sort of is a critical one for us to look at this morning. I'm trying to move as quickly as I can, but this is one that's absolutely essential because it's this passage that basically opens up the door to Gentile evangelism. We're here today because of Acts 10. And we've received the Spirit today the moment we believed in Jesus because of Acts 10. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. In Acts chapter 10, Peter wasn't prepared for the Samaritans. But he was prepared by God for what he was about to do with the Gentiles. God had the vision of the sheet coming down out of the heaven, you know, with all the strange animals in it that Peter wasn't supposed to eat. And it said, go and eat. Peter said, no, I never do that. Three times God had to do it to get his attention. And then he spelled it out to him. Basically, he was going to go to a house of a Gentile. And he was going to preach to a Gentile. And he was prepared to witness to Gentiles. Finally getting to Acts 1.8. And so we read in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. And let me just read it to you. Then Peter opened his mouth after he began to... To, to sense what God was doing, he says he opened his mouth and said in the presence of this Gentile and his, fa- his household and his friends probably, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. No partiality. There's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. But in every nation, whoever fears God and works righteousness, who has a heart for righteousness, is accepted by God. doesn't mean they're saved eternally. It means, though, that God sees those who are seeking him. And so Peter goes on to preach Jesus Christ to this man and his household. Again, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again. And then he brings it to a conclusion, verse 43, To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. Do you notice any change in the rules? Remember who has the ability to open and close, to retain and loose? Peter does. What was the re-rules for the, for the Jews? Repent and be baptized. What was the rules for Samaritans? They didn't really need to repent. They were ready to go. But they, would be, they were baptized. Peter said, I endorse that. He laid hands on them. What's the rule for the Gentiles? To receive the remission of sins, which was a blessing of a relationship with the living God. A personal relationship. What was the rule? Believe. And once you are forgiven, in the sense of that now you are God's friend, then you also have the Spirit of God is not given to those that aren't forgiven. So you, the Lord pours out His Spirit upon a person. So that's what we read. To Him all the prophets witness, verse 43, that through His name, whoever believes in Him will receive the remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out also on the Gentiles. Wow! Can you believe this? They got the gift of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have to repent. They didn't have to be baptized. They just believed. Just in case, for my Church of Christ friends... 
They think that somehow Peter slipped baptism in beforehand. We read in verse 46 and 47, For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, a clear indication they had received the Holy Spirit. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? That these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they stayed and asked him to stay a few days. Wow. Can you believe it? Here we are. Acts 10. We finally get to the Gentiles. Acts 8. Samaritans. Acts 2. Jews. Kingdom age blessing of the Holy Spirit through repentance and baptism. Through baptism by believing. Which becomes the pattern for the church age to come, by the way. We receive the blessings of the kingdom age today. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of sins on a personal level. When you are born again, you receive a positional forgiveness that is eternal. But in terms of our our life on this earth, we receive also immediately through faith the forgiveness of all the sins that we've had so we can have an ongoing relationship with God right now, not just waiting till eternity. Moving on. Not everybody's happy about this move. And this is where I'm just going to do some quick summary and bring this to a conclusion. Not everybody's happy about it. The Jews didn't like it. Particularly Pharisaical Jews. Now you say, oh, those weren't believers. No, they were. They were believers in Jesus Christ. And they just saw Christianity. Basically, they saw the Messiah, faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as a more perfect form of Judaism. So you still had to keep the laws of Moses. If you were a man, you had to be circumcised. If you were a Christian, you had to keep the dietary laws. You, had to eat, you couldn't eat bacon on your, on your eggs in the morning. You had to keep the laws of Moses. And so they began to make a big stink about this first Gentile people, Cornelius and his family. Well, they had a contention, it says, with Peter in Acts chapter 11. The contention means they had a real point of argument. They were really in a fight. And they were unhappy with Peter because he was eating with them, no less. He was eating bacon and eggs. And they were not happy. But Peter explained to them what happened. That sort of settled the dust. And then we go on and read about how Paul and Silas and Barnabas and and in the next few chapters, there's all this activity among Gentiles. Gentiles are just becoming Christians in droves. More and more people that are Gentiles are becoming Christians. They're believers in Jesus, that He's the Messiah, the one that was promised from the beginning. And it's a fulfillment of all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But not everybody's happy. The more this goes on, the more the Gentiles, they're ignoring the, the, the commandments of the Old Testament. They weren't getting circumcised. They weren't keeping the Jewish, the Jewish way of life. And the Jews, believing Jews, we're talking about here. Not just Jews that are out there and that Jesus faced during His ministry. We're talking about Pharisees and Jews that were actual believers in Jesus. They were not happy, though, that they were not requiring, that Peter was not requiring them to keeping the law. So, things reach ahead for Paul. And just prior to Acts chapter 15, if you were studying the book of Galatians as one of my pastors, 
This is when the book of Galatians was written. At the head of this whole controversy, this, this was exploding. It was threatening to tear apart the church and create two churches, one Jew, one Gentile. And if there's one thing that that first eight chapters or ten chapters of Acts shows us is that God didn't intend for one church. He intended for, I mean, for two or three churches, one Jew, one Samaritan, one Gentile. He wanted one church with Jew and Gentile on an equal playing field. And this was what was happening. It was threatening to tear apart the church. And so we get to Acts chapter 15. And let me just bring it to a conclusion because this is where the transition ends. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, saved there doesn't mean eternally saved. They're not talking about that. They're talking about the salvation, a blessing. This was all part of the salvation experience. In other words, you can have eternal life, but are you experiencing it today? Are you experiencing the blessings of eternal life today? That's part of our salvation. That was the broader sense of salvation they're speaking about here. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that's a latotes, by the way, for those of you looking for it in Scripture, heard me refer to that before. In other words, use a negative to express a positive. When they had no small discussion or dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. What question? Do Gentiles who believe in Jesus have to keep the law? in order to experience God's blessing of salvation upon them in this life, today. That was the crucial context. And, of course, many of them would have probably carried it into eternal life as well. In other words, you can't be justified in the eyes of God apart from not trying to keep the law. Verse 3. So, being sent on their way to by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing their conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy of all the brethren. Everybody was excited. All these Gentiles are coming to faith. All but the Jews, hardcore Jews, which some call the Judaizers. Verse 4. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. Notice we're qualifying. These aren't just Pharisees in general. These are believing Pharisees who who believe in Jesus. They rose up saying, it, it is necessary to circumcise these Gentiles and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when they had been much dispute, I mean, this was a big brouhaha. Peter rose up. Why Peter? He's got the keys here. He can unlock the blessings. He can set the rules. Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that while that a good while ago, God chose among us. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit. He's referring back to this experience with Cornelius. Just as he did with us, to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. Purifying their hearts, cleansing them from their sins by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke, referring to the Mosaic law, on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Then James got up and he, he spoke, affirming God's plan for the salvation of the Gentiles, concluding with these words, Therefore I judge 
and he was the head of the Jerusalem church, the chief elder, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Not trouble them with the Mosaic law. But that we write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. By the way, these things, I'll explain them some other time, but they, they really predate the law. Verse 21. For Moses had had throughout many generations those who preach in him in every city. In other words, if they did any of these things, not only would they be offending God, they'd be offending Jews. And it would hurt the witness of the church. Being read in every synagogues, being read in the synagogues every day. And, and he continues on every Sabbath, I should say. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter by them. And the letter basically said the same thing that we've already read. That's the end of it. The church has taken an official position. The Jerusalem Council occurred about 50 A.D., the transition has ended. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be problems down the road with some Jews that are trying to insert or insist that the Gentiles keep the law. But those that are leading the church can go back to the decision that was made here under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So what's the pattern today? Do we have to repent to be saved, to receive the Holy Spirit? No. Do we have to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit? No. To be forgiven, to be close to God, to have a friendship with God? No. The pattern is believe. So the moment we believe, not only do we receive eternal life, which has always been the case from the beginning to the end, but we also receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the forgiveness of sins, a close personal relationship with the living God today that we can enjoy at this very moment. That's what we get. It was at this point that the transition was complete. An age in which the law given by God to the children of Israel governed the lives of his people to an age in which the grace of God in Jesus Christ would govern the lives of his people. A time when the kingdom was offered to a nation, to a time when its future blessing of the Holy Spirit could be experienced by individual believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. A time, a focus upon the blessings of one family to a time when all the families of the earth would be blessed. A time when Jewish evangelism consumed the efforts of God's servants, servants to a time when Gentile evangelism would consume their efforts. A time of clinging to a revelation about the future remnant of God, which is still future, to a present time of clinging to the promises for the family of God. A time of ethnic discrimination to a time of no discrimination in which all Gentile and Jew are welcome into the body of Christ. A time when experiencing God's blessing depended upon fulfilling certain requirements to a time of experiencing God's blessing depended simply upon faith alone and Christ alone. A time of guilt and failure constantly troubled, where constant, which constantly troubled the people of God because they were always failing to keep the law. To a time of serious reflection upon the royal law, which is to love one another as I have loved you, in response to God's grace. That's our, that's our marching orders, if you will, today. The translation has taken place. Paul mentions in Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of our Lord Jesus Christ, if indeed you have heard 
past tense, of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me. This is the dispensation of grace of God that's been given to Paul. And they've heard of it now. It's past. It's now been, the, the old dispensation of law has been done away. Now we're on the dispensation of grace. So, what do we learn from this in a practical way? Well, the first and most important thing is you connect a lot of dots when you do this kind of teaching. I'm hoping that some of you that aren't totally lost, we're connecting some dots. Like Peter, how's, what's this role that he plays in the church? The rock. What is the rock upon which the church is built? The keys. The Holy Spirit. Eternal salvation. God's wrath versus God's eternal hell. Fellowship with God. Friendship with God as opposed to being justified by God our judge. Conversion. Sins being blotted out. The times of refreshing and restoration of all things. The laying on of hands. Paul's ministry. How's it all fit together? Well, if you take all these dots and connect them, you're going to have a picture of the age in which we live, which is called the age of the church. And that's what the first and most important thing that I hope to accomplish in a, mess, in a, in a teaching time like this. Hopefully, maybe in some of your lives that's been accomplished this morning. There's one other thing I just want to mention. There are two different... All of us, as I said before, go through transitions. Two years ago, two and a half years ago now, no, three, three years ago, I went through a transition. It was 2006. And I made a decision to step down as the pastor of this church. It was a really hard decision because I love this church, but I thought it was in the best interest of the church. And I was looking forward to the next step in my life and where God would do with me. And I recall after we ordained uh, Neil and we were moving along pretty well, and, and uh, I took a trip down to Dallas, Texas. And I met in the afternoon with Zane Hodges and Bob Wilkin, very dear friends of mine, as you know. And we were sitting there at the table and discussing something that we all thought was important to the Grace Evangelical Society and to the movement of the Grace, the Grace Movement. And it was a study Bible written from our grace perspective. And they were saying, you know, uh, Zane saying, well, I don't have time to do it, but I'll work on it. And Bob was saying, well, I've got all these other projects, but I'd like to see it done. And they look at me and they say, we think you could do it. I thought, oh, this is interesting. I'm willing to, you know, pitch in, but I didn't think I was going to have to lead the project. And anyhow, I go home and or back to the hotel, and I'm just excited, thinking, well, I guess this is God's new plan for me. And I sort of figured out, yeah, it sort of fits, and this and that. And uh, earlier in the summer, I'd been up to talk to Jody Dillow about maybe working at Be Wirral, but when they talked about raising your own support, I said, forget it. Hey, Red ain't going to do that. You know, I'll do some things, but that isn't one of the things I want to do. So I put that out of my mind. And I was thinking of this other thing, and I'm walking across the street, and I, I played football, and I'd gotten hit by some 280-pound tackles, blocked, counter-blocked. But I'd never gotten hit by a 4,000-pound car before. And, I mean, it hit me hard, and I didn't even know I was gotten hit. I was actually, I, I think I might have been praying at the time about this whole thing. And boom, I'm hit. I go through the windshield, and I'm a mess. Go to the hospital. Carolyn's not there. I got my two friends, Bob and, and uh, Dave Simulvac, came down, stayed with me, held my hand. We got through the whole thing. And uh, as you know the story, it was a disaster. About three months, I was just out of commission. 
I couldn't do anything about, about the situation. The thing with Zane and Bob sort of grew cold. I was disappointed. I didn't know, of course, that Zane was going to die a year and a half later. But on the other hand, God knew. God had something else. Because it was during that transition that I began to think, well, I have to go back and do what I know best. I'm going to have to find a church to pastor. So I sent out some, uh, you know, applications and nothing happened. I mean, nothing. And uh, I said, what's wrong with me? You know, am I too old? I know I can preach. And so I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what's going on here, Lord? I'm saying I'm reverting back to the past. When I'm in a transition, there's that temptation to go back and let's play it safe. Let's go with the law. Let's go with what we know. Instead, that, that didn't seem to work out too well. So that looked like God had cut that possibility off. What else is out there? Oh, there's that thing with B-World. Uh, God, forget it. I'm not going to go raise money. I'm not going to raise support. I'm not, I'm not cut out of that swatch. Finally, the Lord just got a hold of my heart. He said, you don't trust me? Think I can do it? So I said, okay, I'll try it. But it's all your show, God. If it doesn't work, I'm going to go have a good time, live my life the way I want to live it. <laughs> I was really upset. And so I go off and I go and I, I got signed up with B-World in 2007, January. Got some basic ideas about how to maybe approach some people and see what might happen. And lo and behold, people actually thought I was worth supporting. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and the support came in. I began my ministry. And again, I thought, well, I'm going to write. Going overseas doesn't seem like it's my thing at this point in life. Next thing I know, that sort of goes on hold, and the doors open up to go overseas, and I see what God's doing. Because over there, what I've just shared with you this morning, they've never heard. And they won't see it in our materials, and they won't see it from most of our teachers at the world. They don't know about it. They don't have a grace perspective. And so all of a sudden, I'm seeing what God was doing. You know, what, what I thought was obvious, God says, no, I've got something else in mind. I've got another plan. And he was taking me in a different direction. I share that with you because, you know, every one of us here goes through transitions in life. It may be a transition from being unmarried to married. It may be a transition from being single, I mean, to being single parents or with no children to having children. It may be a transition from getting out of college and going into work. It may be a transition uh, in which we've had uh, a great healthy life and all of a sudden we've got a heart fibrillation and we've got to slow down and deal with life differently. Whatever the transition is, we go through transitions. And there'll be that temptation to look back and try to find things in the past that work for us. But instead, God's saying, i got something in the future. But even when we look to the future, we think, well, I'm figuring this out. But God may have something quite different than what we really anticipate. So I share that with you as maybe some encouragement and some help. I thank you for your patience as we walk through this today. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, I thank you for your love, for your patience, for your blessings upon our life. I thank you for the gift of the Spirit of God who equips us, enables us to share in such a way that, uh, that we can I truly see your hand at work. I thank you for the privilege I've had of teaching pastors 
They're just so hungry to learn your word. I thank you for the privilege of being able to pastor this church and to be stretched and to grow into a a loving pastor with a loving congregation and together to share so many wonderful memories and a hope that is ours in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.